0: And as you're taking your seats, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to 2nd Timothy, the book of 2nd Timothy chapter 4. And we are this morning finishing off our summer series in the book of 2nd Timothy. It's the final portion, the final passage, and we've entitled this series Finishing Strong, and we intend to finish this book strong. And uh, Paul intends to finish this book strong in a really powerful way. The Apostle Paul has written this letter to Timothy the young pastor who's in Ephesus he's written amidst much persecution amidst much opposition to the gospel right now Paul writes sitting in a pit and he's awaiting his death that we know church history tells us Paul would end up sitting in this pit and being tried and condemned and he would lose his head for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ and these really are his final words the final book of the, the, from the Apostle Paul and the very final words that he has written, and I think it really is instructive for us this morning. You see, we're inclined to look at the great individuals of history, whether that be in secular world history or in church history. We're inclined to look at the individuals who have accomplished much, who have appeared to be incredibly successful, and to celebrate them and to praise them. We may be inclined to do so when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. He was a phenomenal follower of Jesus Christ. He was used in mighty ways. And we can look at him and give him a lot of praise and a lot of credit. In the same way, we look at our our world and we look at the athletes and the inventors, the CEOs of major companies and world leaders. We look at authors and actors, but one thing that they inevitably have in common, and if you were to ask any single one of them how they did what they did, they would tell you that they could not have done it alone. In fact, there would be a long list of people to be thanked. The, uh, I I couldn't have done it without you, award speech certainly could be made by each and every one, and here we see that it could easily be made by the Apostle Paul. He looks... Back at his life, and in many ways, as we look back at last week's text, we could say that the, that the book would have really um, been fitted well to end there, where Paul has a moment to be introspective about his own personal life and ministry, and he says to Timothy that he, you know, has has fought the good fight, he's finished the race, he's kept the faith. And he looks towards the the future that's laid up for him. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. It's laid up for me in heaven with the Lord, the righteous judge, and he'll award it to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. That would have been a phenomenal place for Paul to put down the, the ink and the quill and the parchment paper to set it aside and say, there. But that's not what he does. Instead, he turns now to some relationships to some individuals who really exemplify what it means to be a part of a community and to strive together as a community. And it's important to know that as Paul sees his ministry in his life, he longs to finish strong, he longs for Timothy to finish strong, to persevere till the end, but as he thinks it over with these final instructions and he he wants Timothy to get the sense, and he wants us, I believe, to get the sense that he was not alone on this mission. And while this is the final leg of his relay, while he is passing the baton off, not only to Timothy, he wants us to see he's passing it off to a number of other individuals as well. There is here a list of those who are known, and a list of those who are unknown, and all of them make up the church of Jesus Christ. You see, finishing strong requires a community effort. Not one of us is going to be able to finish strong as followers of Christ if we try to do it alone. We all need one another, and so as we look at God's word this morning from this text, here's what I want us to walk away with, four commitments that we make as a church family so that we can finish strong, not just individually, but together as a church family as we look towards what God has for us in this upcoming year and in the life of this church. So keep that in the back of your mind as we read God's word together. Let's begin at verse 9. Paul writes to Timothy and he says these words, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments." Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but it all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth and the Lord will rescue me, rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter Eubulus sends greetings to you, as is Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. These parting words from Paul are of incredible importance. And it reminds us that we need a consistent Christian community if we are going to be finishing strong together. So here's the first commitment as we think about this body, the family of God. Here's what we want to do. We want to make some commitments so that we can bolster each other and strive forward together with greater effectiveness. The first commitment is this. We are committed to support one another in the hour of need. We're committed to support one another in the hour of need. And the Lord knows that every one of us will have hours of need throughout our lives and will be in desperate need of the support of friends and of ministry partners. Paul begins in verse 9, again, speaking to Timothy. Remember, this is a young man who he had discipled and he had left as a pastor in the church in Ephesus. There, uh, Timothy has encountered incredible opposition from inside the church and from outside the church. And he's been wanting to kind of throw the towel in and he's wondering how he can keep going. So Paul, his mentor, comes alongside him and says, Timothy, you need to persevere like me to the end. No matter the cost. And then he looks at Timothy in verse 9 and he says, do your best to come to me soon. I love that Paul longs to see Timothy, It reminds us of the intimacy of the relationship that they had and how important in the dying days of the Apostle Paul, it was for him to be around those he loved him and knew that he loved as well. He longs for the friendship, he longs for the fellowship as he sits in this prison, knowing that his days are coming to an end, to simply have the loving support of a faithful friend and Timothy has been just that throughout his entire life. But in contrast to that, one of the things Paul highlights is not only are we uh, to take note of the faithfulness of some friends, we need to see the failures of others. He highlights in verse 10, did you see that, Demas? A man, he says, is in love with the present world, and just catch the ring of these words and feel the pain as Paul pens these words and expresses his heart to Timothy, this man has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He's left me all alone in my hour of need when I desperately needed somebody to support me. All of a sudden I turned around and that one Demas who had been faithful in the past has abandoned me. We know from scripture that Demas was actually a ministry partner of Paul. Paul writes about him in Colossians chapter 4 and in Philemon and he mentions him as a fellow worker in the gospel. And on two occasions, he highlights him just so that he can demonstrate, listen, this this guy has been faithful. There has been a great season of faithfulness in Demas. He's been used in mighty ways. But right now, maybe a decade later, Paul writes this letter and says, Demas has abandoned me. He's deserted me. He didn't want to stick with me when everything got really hard. You know, we can learn from this as we look at Demas. You see, it's possible to be incredibly faithful in one season of life to the Lord and utterly fail in another season. It's possible to be kind of cranking away on all cylinders, just firing away and doing so much good for the Lord in one season and even be recognized and celebrated as a partner in the ministry and then all of a sudden to be labeled as a deserter, someone who abandoned the cause. Why, why would Demas desert the great apostle Paul in his time of need? Paul says it very clearly here that he was in love with this present world. A statement that we see and we can resonate with so sadly in our lives. You see, this is what this meant for Demas. He was loving this earthly, visible world with all of its comforts. In contrast with the invisible, still future kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was the object of the highest love and affection for Paul, Here Demas looked at this present world and he said, this is where my home is. I long not for struggle, not for sacrifice, not for suffering for Jesus Christ. I just want to be comfortable, so get me away from anything that's going to cause any kind of chaos and just let me be at peace and be at rest and be in comfort. On the surface, it doesn't sound that bad. On the surface, it actually sounds quite normal, but when it's in the context of suffering for the greatest cause of all, the cause of Christ, it is abominable. There is an intentional contrast that Paul is setting up here, by the way. Demas, in love with this present world, look back at verse nine with me, or 10, excuse me, verse eight. Paul talks about the day that he will be awarded by the righteous judge the crown of righteousness, and here's what he says, not only to me also, but to all who have loved his appearing. The contrast is between those who love this present world and all of its comforts and those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ and are willing to suffer through whatever is necessary to get there. Paul says, Demas is not being characterized as one who longs for another world. He chose this world as his home. He chose the comforts of this life as his comfort. And Paul says, as opposed to me, I am looking for my comfort and my rest and my peace in another world. You say, well, what does this mean for Demas? Does does this mean that Demas had abandoned the faith, in other words, he's an apostate, he's lost forever, that he only appeared for a season to be a follower of Christ, but now he actually is exposed as being a fraud? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In fact, I, I would argue that this pictures, to be sure, a grievous sin, really horrific sin that was motivated by self-interest. That's at the heart of Demas's sin here. He simply wanted to be comfortable. He wanted his own personal happiness to rule the day, one commentator says it like this, that he loved the safety and ease and the fleeting pleasures of this world and had not the Christian fortitude to share the dangers of the Christ, or the Christian love to minister to the sufferings of the nearly desolate apostle Paul. I mean, how, how, listen, how dishonorable is it to not want to suffer for Christ? How more dishonorable is it to abandon those who are suffering and in need of your support? Here Demas wanted neither. He wanted neither, but when we think of Demas, I want to I make sure he becomes um, a filter for our own hearts. We need to look at our own hearts through Demas' life and through his negative example. I wonder this morning, do we seek to shirk the discomforts and dangers of an uncompromising stand for Christ, and do we desire to enjoy the ease and pleasures of this life instead? It's, it's a really important question for every one of us to wrestle with, and sometimes we need to wrestle with this question daily in our hearts, if we're honest, don't we? We, we often long for the comforts and the entertainment and the pleasures of this life, and we put off the greater comforts, pleasures of the life to come. You know, like I said, this is a uh, uh, there are going to be times when we all find ourselves in an hour of need. In fact, we're seeing this kind of play out on the world scene right now, aren't we? This, this has been an unbelievable few weeks when we look at the devastation that's being caused by earthquakes and now, now the third hurricane hitting the coast. And you just think of that for a second. I mean, these, there are people right now who are in desperate need of help, of support, of people to come alongside and supply the needs that they can't supply for themselves, I was really struck during um, Hurricane Harvey in Houston, I got some friends in Texas, and we were just in Texas over the summertime visiting some of our friends in Austin. My friend Brian Payne there, he's the pastor at Harvest Austin, as soon as the, the hurricane hit and they, they saw the, the devastation it was causing and, and how millions of people were losing their homes and being evacuated, and yet there were still people in desperate need, his church rallied together in this time of desperation, they bought themselves a boat and, and Pastor Brian brought uh, one other gentleman from his church with him, they traveled all the way to Houston and for three days, three days, they traveled around in a little boat navigating through the, the craziness there, rescuing people who were still trapped in their houses, who had not yet received any kind of support. It was a really, really sweet example, and not only that, I love what we see, listen, in the midst of the devastation, which is horrific, one of the beautiful things we see about humanity is that they rally together to come to the aid of those who are in desperate need. That is a common grace of God, that the world can come together in these ways. How much more should it be a reality for those of us who know the comforting aid of Jesus Christ? The church of Jesus Christ needs to be the primary people, the primary place of support. It is the place where we rally together to meet the needs of those who are hurting. It is the safe place we walk into each and every week, not to put on some kind of a facade as if everything is fine and none of us have any problems or hurts. It's the place we come to show that we are desperately in need. Timothy mentions some other friends here, or excuse me, Paul does. And you'll notice that they're in a bit of a different category. Demas alone has deserted Paul and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. These two men have not deserted like Demas. The qualification of being in love with the present world does not apply to them, it applies strictly to Demas. And likely what we need to see from this is that yes, Paul was alone and that these other men had gone on different ministry assignments and even in the midst of them doing what is right and what is good, Paul still felt that. He felt the loss of good men, good friends, good partners doing what God had called them to do and so he sits now lonely but at the same time not alone. I love verse 11, we're reminded that he says Luke alone is with me. Again, he, he sits there in the cell, but he has never been fully and truly abandoned by his friends. Luke is the, the great physician. He is the writer of the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and it is more than likely that he is the one who is actually penning this letter to Timothy right here. He has gone through so much, and he has become a, a faithful and beloved friend and traveling companion of Paul. And then one more surprise added here. He says, and get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, if you know anything about Mark, and you know anything about his past, and you realize how startling this is for Paul to be beckoning for Mark to come with him. You see, John Mark was a young man at the very early stages of Paul's ministry. And on the first missionary journey, John Mark had come with Paul, and during the journey, things got way harder than he expected, there was too much suffering, way too many trials, it was just flat out difficult, and so he deserted Paul in the middle of the missionary journey. When they're on mission, and Mark's like, I can't do this, this is is too tough, I gotta go back home where it's much easier. Later on in Paul's ministry on the second missionary journey Paul and his friend Barnabas go to go on this missionary journey and Barnabas says to to Paul why don't we bring Mark with us and Paul says are you crazy that's a paraphrase. He says, Don't you remember what he did last time? He abandoned us. He can't, he can't come with us. What, what's to make you think that he's not going to abandon it when it gets hard again? And yet what we see, listen, is decades later, at the end of Paul's life, we see that Timothy, or excuse me, that John Mark has redeemed himself. He is no longer the useless, unhelpful fearful man he once was he is now strong and courageous and faithful in the ministry of Jesus Christ and there's something we can learn from the example of John Mark and it's this that past failure even rejection does not prevent present usability That is a message of great hope that we need to hear because how many of us can relate to John Mark? We look at our lives and we see, man, there has been so much failure and and yeah, I I was going strong. I started off so well and then I tripped and fell flat on my face and I love the things of this world more than I love the cause of Christ and I still wrestle with that in my heart and the good news is there's hope. There's hope for you and me. If that's where we have been, we can come back from disgrace. We can come back from failure. We can move from disgrace to grace. We can move from failure to faithfulness. Not only that, you can become immensely useful to Christ. Do You catch the words he says there? Bring Mark, for he is useful in ministry. I love that. I think there's a twofold sense in which he's now useful. He's useful personally to Paul, where where once there was a fraction in their relationship where Paul wanted nothing to do with him because of his desertion. Paul says, now he is so useful to me. He'll be such a blessing to me. I could use his friendship and his comfort and the care that he can provide. But not only that, listen, I think this is broader. He can be useful in the greater cause of Christ. He can be useful in gospel ministry here. He is not worthless. God in his grace had preserved him, brought him back. And maybe that's good news for you today because maybe you are where John Mark was. Feeling the disgrace, feeling the shame, feeling the guilt, and you need to hear the message of hope breathed into your lungs today and into your heart. There is hope you could be useful again. And he mentions this man Tychicus. And Tychicus here was being sent um, to Ephesus. He's likely carrying this very letter to Timothy to inform him of Paul's desire for him to come and with all of this instruction. And we probably can assume that Tychicus was gonna be Timothy's replacement temporarily while Timothy came and ministered to Paul. Titus we know a little bit about, incretions we know not much about, but all you need to see here is this that this was a community effort. The ministry of Paul was never a solo a sport. It was never individualistic. There was always a team of people. And as we look at Timothy and what was, what was required of him, Paul was saying, come to me. And by the way, this was going to be a long and expensive journey that Timothy had to made at much personal cost to himself, personal effort and energy and finances, and personal cost because of the opposition he would face. I think we need to glean from this as well that there's always a cost to supporting others in difficult circumstances. If we feel like we can get away with no cost to ourselves in supporting those in their hour of need, we're kidding ourselves. It is always costly. Your resources, your time, your effort, your energy, and while you could be doing other things that would bring you greater comfort, God calls us to step out in faith and to support those in their hour of need. The support that counts is the support that costs. If we're going to finish strong, it's essential that we not only experience that from others, but we provide that for others. See, Paul teaches us something that we need to hear as well, that we shouldn't be afraid to seek support when we need it most. I love Paul's heart. Come and help me. Get here quickly. I need you. And so many of us need to hear this because our pride prevents us from receiving help from others. We want to put up this facade like everything's okay and I don't need your help and I I can't ask for help because that would show too much weakness and frailty and fragility and you think less of me. And yet Paul, the mighty apostle Paul, in a moment of weakness, he's not afraid to reach out and say, would you help me please? That is incredibly Encouraging, But take note of the other side of that coin. We need to be a people, we need to be a church who seeks to support, we're not afraid to provide for those who have needs. In fact, we go above and beyond to support those, especially, especially as they suffer for Jesus. Secondly, notice this, if we're gonna finish strong, we need to be committed to serve one another in the struggles of life. We gotta be committed to serve one another in the struggles of life. Timothy is coming to serve on a number of fronts, but we see here in verse 13 and 14 that there's a very practical aspect to the service that Paul requires of him. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, Paul here asks for three items Uh, from Timothy that will serve him tremendously as he waits out his sentence. Remember, he is in a pit right now waiting for his impending execution. He knows his time is near. And so he first asks Timothy to bring him his cloak. And the reason for this is quite obvious. Uh, He's cold, okay? Um, It's it's chilly in there, and and Paul here is saying, "Look, I'm I'm cold. I desperately need some comfort, some physical comfort." And what one of us cannot relate to waking up on these freezing cold mornings right now and saying, "Get me my coat, please, just a sweater." Well, Paul, remember sitting in this damp, dark hole, suffering. It's like nothing any of us have ever ever experienced, nothing that we've experienced could come close to what Paul is going through here. And notice verse 21, did you catch this? Do your best to come to me before winter. Winter's fast approaching. Saying, I, just, I really need the comfort of this cloak. It would have been a one-piece kind of garment with a hole cut out for his head that would go over top and protect him from the elements and provide warmth and heat. It's a great reminder, listen, that so very often, we must, we must be seeking to meet the physical needs of the people around us. Sometimes we want to over-spiritualize things and, and to the detriment of the physical side of human beings and God calls us to be those who rally together to meet each other's physical needs, to provide a place and things of comfort when it's desperately needed. But more importantly, notice this, Paul asks, and he puts the greater importance on, on two things here, really one thing. He says, don't forget to bring me my books, And most importantly, above all, the parchments. Now, um, we really don't know what the contents of these books are. Lots of scholars have said, well, what what exactly are these books? I mean, what, what do they consist of? What was their content? We really can't say with any degree of certainty. It's possible, though, that these are his own personal notebooks with commentary on the scriptures. Can you imagine reading that? Paul, the great rabbi, his own personal thoughts on the scriptures, maybe some, some sermons that he had written out that he had preached time and time again. The parchments, however, were more expensive than the books, and they're highlighted as being of greater value and importance. They were made uh, from vellum, from animal hides, which were intended to allow them to last longer. They were more durable they were reserved for writings that were deemed of such great value. It's almost certain here that Paul is referring to his own personal copies of the Old Testament scriptures. And some scholars speculate that that they may have actually contained as well copies of the words of Jesus Christ and the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. So, so just step back from that, he said why, why does Paul, I mean how crazy does this, sound? I love this because I'm a nerd and I love books, but, but why in the world does Paul want, like, I don't know how much longer he has to live, it could be hours, it could be weeks, it could be months, maybe it's a year, but the one thing he longs for is books in the parchments. You see it seems that Paul longs not only for the physical comforts of this world, but he longs more importantly for the spiritual comforts of this world. He knows that his physical body should and can be comforted, but more importantly, he longs that his soul would be comforted. And that comfort comes through the reading, the studying, and the learning primarily of the Scriptures. Paul was a man of great intellect and as a man who, who enjoyed the intellectual stimulation from reading, especially from seeking God's face in the pages of Scriptures. I think we need to learn from this. You see, so often in our culture, our culture tells us that when we want to recover and refresh ourselves, we need to get away and do nothing, right? Mind-numbing activity is what we seek in our leisure moments. The word leisure is actually a really, really bad way to define what we desperately need. We don't need leisure. In fact, the older word is a better word, and that is this, recreation, recreation. Recreation is the term that used to be used for leisure. We've now adopted leisure. But I want you to think for a minute of why this is so important. The word recreation, can you see what's built into there? Re-creation. The idea is that God has intended certain activities to be revitalizing, refreshing, renewing. And while we think it's those activities that involve no mental stimulation, God knows better than we do. And he actually knows that actually the thing that is most refreshing to our souls is intellectual stimulation when it comes to the things of God things that stir the affections of our hearts, things that breathe life back into us, that take our eyes off of our small little world and our small little circumstances and puts them back onto what is of most importance, what is grander, what is more majestic, what is more beautiful, what is more captivating to our souls and to our hearts. Paul knew something that we need to Learn, relearn, and to re embrace in our lives that during the struggles of life we serve each other well by bringing the Word of God to bear on each other's lives. You see, it is in the word of God, the supreme source of comfort and strength for our weary souls, and that is where we must turn in our times of need. Paul longed to read the word of God. I can just tell you this from personal experience, that there have been moments of meeting with people on their deathbeds or in hospital rooms, a loss of a child, loss of a loved one, in devastating circumstances where all you can do is simply be present with them, but one of the most comforting things to do, especially with fellow believers, is to take God's word and simply say, Look, I don't have words right now that I can offer you, but let me open up the word of God and read to you of him and of his glory and of his good purposes. Now, I don't mean this in a trite way because sometimes we can take the word of God and we can beat people up with it, right? We can just throw, you know quote scriptures in people's face. Well, you just need to trust God and don't you know what the Bible says? We can use it more as a battering ram than as a, a blanket to comfort but I don't want a pendulum swing too far to the other side. Sometimes we react against people using the Bible that way, and so we say, well, don't ever use the Bible then. Just be present with people. Can can we not go there? Can can there be some middle ground where we say, no, I need to be present, but I need to bring you into the presence of the living God. I need you to hear from him. I need you to hear what is best for your soul. I need you to feast on him and fix your eyes and your gaze upon him. I need you to know his character and his attributes. I need you to be reminded of the salvation that he has accomplished. I need you to remind, be reminded of the glories of heaven from Revelation 21 when you're lying on your deathbed. This is what we need. And one of the most comforting things that people have done for me in my life is sitting with me and opening up the word of God and just reading it with me. Or sometimes somebody will send me a text, uh, just a scripture verse, just out of the blue, and, and, and they'll never know how deeply it encouraged me and how God had used it that day in my life and in my heart. Can, can we be a people? Listen, here's the point for us. Can we be a people who take God's word and we pour it out into others' lives? We pour it into them, especially during the struggles of life. Let it be the comfort that God has designed it to be. I love that in the midst of Paul longing for comfort from Timothy and from his presence, Paul still the the comforter, the the one who loves so deeply, he's looking to now protect and serve the one who's seeking to serve him. Did you catch this? There in verse 14, he, he just warns Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, he says, The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourselves, for he strongly opposed the message. Listen, the bottom line here is this. Paul knows that Timothy in his travels is going to come across a lot of people who hate the message and the messenger. And one of the greatest adversaries that Paul had come across was this man named Alexander, and he was, by trade, a coppersmith. This is helpful for Timothy to be able to identify this man. Many scholars actually believe that that it's this man, Alexander the coppersmith, who's responsible for Paul's imprisonment at this moment. He's the one who riled up the crowds. He's the one who's got Paul on trial. He's the one who's calling for his execution. He so hates The message, did you notice that? He hates the good news of Jesus Christ. He hates the salvation that's offered in Jesus Christ. So Paul lovingly serves Timothy by warning him. Beware of him, he says. And by the way, the Lord will repay him for all of his evil deeds. What a great reminder. Listen, when we face opposition in this life and a lot of our struggles are due to the opposition to the gospel. Just just know, listen, we don't got to attack those who attack us. We can let the Lord have the, the vengeance in those situations. God knows how to handle it far better than we do. We can leave it in his hands. But don't be foolish. Don't walk headlong into the opposition. Paul always, even in prison, trying to care for those around him. What a great example for us. The call that we are committed to serve one another in the struggles of life. Thirdly, note this, if we're gonna finish strong together, we are committed to stand with one another in the cause of Christ. We learn by, as we already have seen, positive examples, but we also learn from the negative examples And here Paul highlights a staggering negative example of faithlessness and of unfaithfulness. He says this in verse 16, at my first defense no one came to stand by me but all deserted me. He's likely referring to his first defense, the initial step of his legal proceedings. Paul is paraded out, he's put on display in front of the magistrates, in front of the, the court system, and there's obviously a standing room and seating room for those who would come to hear the first defense, and you could have friends come along and, in support of you, and Paul gets paraded out, marched out, likely in shackles, called to give an account as to why he should not be in prison, and as he looks around the room looking for, for just a friend he knows is there to support him, he sees no one. No one. Just Imagine the pain. All the time he had invested into them, all of the hours of discipleship, all of the linking arms and ministry together, and now when he needs them so desperately to stand with him in the cause of Jesus Christ, they are nowhere to be found. The rejection was personal. No one stood by me. And it was total. There was no one. There is here, listen, there, there is implied guilt. In other words, Paul, Paul is looking. He, he, he writes there, he's, he's reminding look, they should have been there. They should have stood by me. They should have been there when I needed them the most. How many of us can relate to that kind of statement where you have gone through horrific things in your life, you've gone through pain at the hands of others or circumstances in life, and you look around for the closest friends that you have, the ones who say they love you and they're nowhere to be found, this rips you apart. But doesn't this remind us, listen, that it's a potent reminder that we are all prone to fail one another, to let each other down, and to not step up when we should. It's easy to think of the times when others have let us down. Amen? It's a lot harder to think of the times when we've let others down. But let me encourage you with this this morning. We've all done it. We've all been there. It's amazing to me how this so closely parallels another massive failure Another failure to stand with one who deserved to be stood by. Can you remember Peter? You remember Peter? So boisterous, so fervent, so zealous in the things of the Lord. Jesus looks at Peter before Jesus' own trial and says, Peter, you are going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter says, are you kidding me? I will never deny you, Lord. I will be with you to the bitter end. And then we read the account of one moment, Peter denying Jesus, the second moment, Peter denying Jesus, then the final moment around that fire, here, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you with Jesus? I don't know what you're talking about. And as the rooster crows, one of the most staggering aspects of that story is, this is amazing, Peter is in sight of Jesus. And he looks across the courtroom, and he sees his Savior. He sees Jesus, the one he said, I will never deny you. And there he is, bloodied and battered and beaten, a mock trial, unjust all around. And Jesus turns his face at Peter's final denial, and their eyes meet one another. In that moment, Peter begins to weep bitterly broken over his abandonment of Jesus Christ. Paul here, the sense of utter abandonment that he must have felt, must have hurt so deeply, that personal relationship, when when the abandonment happens, it is so deep, the hurt, but here is what is so staggering with Paul, is that he is just like Jesus, you remember how Jesus comes along and restores Peter, and lifts him back up by his grace, don't you love this, the desertions do not lead Paul to bitterness like they didn't lead Jesus to bitterness, and here's the statement, look at it, look at it, may it not be charged against them. if that's not a statement of grace and kindness and mercy and forgiveness I don't know what is but strangely listen doesn't it almost sound very unfamiliar to us I mean if we had it our way when you know somebody abandoned us or deserted us I mean we'd like to take some white out remember that is and we kind of roll over that knot right there and the statement of our heart in the moment of abandonment is this may it be charged against them how How dare you treat me like that? How dare you leave me? I will never forgive you. We say these kind of things because the hurt is so deep. And so when Paul says, may it not be charged against them, doesn't this sound sadly so unfamiliar to our so often resentful hearts? I mean, when wronged, we seethe with anger. When abandoned, we long for vengeance. When hurt, we seek to retaliate. Oftentimes, the only seemingly spiritual response we can have is to pray imprecatory prayers. This it went over most of your heads. But who among us can't relate to Paul? Been abandoned or deeply hurt or deeply wounded? And listen, not all hurt and woundedness is equal. Some of you have been wounded and hurt far more deeply than I will ever know or understand. But we can all relate to Paul and the hurt that he experiences in this moment. Those who are supposed to love us, deserting and abandoning. But I wonder this morning, can you relate to Paul here? May it not be charged against them. This is the part we struggle with. I wonder if you are here this morning and you're holding on to some things, some wrongs, some pain, some hurt that's been done to you, unjustly, irresponsibly, horrific, I wonder if you've been clinging to it, if you've been holding on to that resentment, you've been living in a state of unforgiveness and bitterness. You know, I say this often, it's, it's, it's not original to me, but, you know, that bitterness that destroys and corrodes from the inside, bitterness is, is like drinking poison, hoping the other person is gonna die. I know some of you in here, like I I, I want to be released from that. I can't, it is killing me. I'm an angry, unpleasant person. Nobody likes being around me because my anger over this hurt in my life has so infected every area of my life. Nobody can stand to be around me any longer. I mean, I, I just, I can't do it any longer. How do I break free of this bitterness and this unforgiveness? The answer, listen, the answer is to go straight to, do a beeline to the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says in Colossians 3.13, in Ephesians chapter four, he, he says that we are forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you, right? Do you see that? Paul says this, he, he doesn't make conditions like, well, you know what, if they've done this to you, then don't worry about it, you don't need to forgive them. He expects that in the same way that God has forgiven us for every offense, every sin, if we've come to him in repentance and faith, listen, if we have done that, then he says this, let that be your example. You run to the cross and you see, listen, that there is nothing that God was not unwilling to forgive you of. And so there is nothing that you should hold against your brother or sister. Because while they sinned against you, their greater offense is against God himself. We run to the cross You say, well, does that kind of overlook sin or excuse sin? No, and that's not what Paul is doing. Listen, we are called not to excuse sin, but to extend mercy. And there's such a beautiful picture here of Paul extending this mercy. But I want to speak maybe to the other side of that coin as well. You may be the one in here who has hurt another person. And so for you, it's not the bitterness that you're holding on to. You've actually justified your behavior or your actions you have significantly hurt somebody maybe even in this room maybe somebody in your family and for you you need to hear this what paul is extending to you is the hope of a second chance May it not be charged against them is one of the greatest words in all of the scripture, right? Like this is what God, God is not holding our sin against us any longer. He has given us a second chance through forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ. And by the way, he's given us a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. And he'll keep giving us chances because we don't earn favor with God. We received favor from God by grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. So maybe though today, your response to this passage is simply to go before God and confess your sin, even before this message ends, even right now, to simply bow down and say, God, forgive me for what I have done to others, how I have hurt them so deeply with my actions and my behavior and my attitude. Lord, I need your forgiveness, and then I would call you, listen, the scriptures would call you, then to go to that person and make right what is wrong, be reconciled. While all deserted and refused to stand with Paul he does make it clear with such conviction that he was not alone. I love this. This is so life-giving to our souls. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against him. Look at verse 17, here it is. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul says don't you understand I was running this race for the cause of Jesus Christ and it was him who stood with me while all others humanly speaking abandoned me I was never alone what great hope that is for our hearts today the Lord was with him you know if you stand for truth you will often stand alone but if you have God on your side what more do you need this is, of course, a massive confidence builder for every follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus has stood with Paul, by the way, physically. You remember that in Jerusalem? and it, one, of his, one of his first imprisonments, Acts chapter 23, verse 11, he says that, that literally Jesus, the, the, the incarnate Christ, came and stood with him, the exalted, risen Lord. He comforted him in his time of need. He stood with him. In the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he strengthened him to proclaim the gospel, and even here we see, even, listen, people ask, is is this literal? Did Jesus come and do the same thing here? We don't know for sure, but whether it is literal or whether it is spiritual in the spiritual sense, Paul knew, listen, Paul knew that the Lord was near him. He knew that when he was walking with Christ and fighting for the cause of Christ, that the Lord was always with him. A.W. Tozer says it so powerfully, he says this, God is not here or there, but carried here or there in my heart. Christ in him and with him was his source of strength. He says that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. You see, that was Paul's mission, that was his agenda, Paul saw this opportunity of preaching the gospel in the official center of Rome as the fulfilling of the call that God had placed on his life. Remember when when God set him aside, Jesus set him aside, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul says, I did it. (laughs) I ran my race, I finished the course, I was faithful right to the very end. I had the chance to stand in front of all of the who's who of this culture and society and declare with boldness, because of the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the gospel is the hope for humanity. Paul stood in that moment and he made a powerful defense of the gospel, most probably one of the more powerful defenses the world has ever seen. And as a result, we see in verse 17 that the Lord, he says, stood by me and strengthened me, and I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He was in the clutches of death, and in that moment, God spared his life. His time was not yet over. And in verse 18, he gives us all some confidence. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Paul was confident of the Lord's rescue, not necessarily, listen Christian, from death, but he was confident that no evil attack could undermine his faith or, or courage or cause him in any moment to lapse into disastrous sin. He knew that when he was walking in the strength of the Lord that he was going to stand for the cause of Christ no matter the cost, And even if it meant his life, he was confident, did you see that again, in where he was going. He was confident of heaven. He was confident that his though he would be absent from the body, he would be present with the Lord. And he was confident in God's glorious plan, and so he could rejoice. I love that he bursts out, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, God knows exactly what he's doing. I'm confident in his plan. Lord, take me, take me, and use me however you see fit. I love that we sang that in that new song, don't you? What a great declaration of the Christian life. Lord, whatever you see fit, I exist for you and for your glory forever and ever. Amen. And this, by the way, provides our confidence together as a family, as a people who love one another, who are striving together in the common cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand for him and we stand with him. What more do we need? Amen? This is our hope. And lastly, if we are going to finish strong, we are committed to strive with one another in the grace of God. Paul concludes, again, it's it's staggering to think that these are the final words Paul would pen that we have captured in scripture. He closes his letter as he so often does by charging the recipients to greet others in the body of Christ. A reminder, again, that he was not alone. There were so many people involved in the, the work of the ministry, in the gospel moving forward. And here he greets old friends. You know, he says, greet Prisca and Aquila. That's Priscilla and Aquila. And the household of Ones of These are old, faithful friends, ministry partners we've been introduced to in this letter and in the book of Acts. He talks about Erastus, who remained at Corinth, and Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Guys we don't know too much about, but clearly they are partners in ministry, he says, do your best to come to me before winter, and then he mentions Eubulus, who sends greetings, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, again, these are individuals, just note this, that we actually know nothing about historically. They're mentioned here, but for the vast majority of these people, we have no concept of who they were, what they did, their names kind of are recorded here, but what they did is not recorded anywhere. You say, why is that so significant? Well, simply because these faithful friends had been instrumental in Paul's ministry, and they had been instrumental in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of them had likely invested considerable time and energy into the ministry. Some had forfeited much, some had given much. It had cost them much of their financial resources, of their personal wealth, and some of them even their lives. But for many of them, we'll never ultimately know what they gave, we will just know that they gave. That they were there, that they played a role. And all we know is that ultimately, Paul was not alone in his ministry. Behind every great leader, there is an army of knowns and unknowns, striving together in the common cause. You know, this really struck a chord with me when I, I watched the new movie, Dunkirk. I don't know if you've had the chance to see that. I love historical films, I love war films. Dunkirk. Um walks through a fictional story but a real, obviously, event, historical event. What's so fascinating about the, the movie, though, is that, and this again, this you can go either way with this, um, it's fascinating, there's no backstory given to any of the characters. And in many senses, you don't even get to know the names of the main characters in the movie. They're simply just there. And this has driven a lot of people crazy. Like, I don't like that, and here's why, because you know, we feel like to really get engrossed in a movie, we gotta be brought into the story by being knit in our hearts to the character. Like, I need to know them. I need, to, I need to connect with them. And here there is none of that. And this was very, very intentional on behalf of the, uh, the, the writer and the director of the film. And here's why. Because the names were unimportant. Unimportant. <laughs> The backstory was unimportant. It was the greater cause, it was the mission, it was what they were fighting for, which was of ultimate importance at that time, at that place, to them, for our history. It was of incredible importance, and so to not detract from what was of utmost importance, they simply did not elaborate on the characters. It was the bigger picture. The story not just of the battle but of the entire war and the common cause which was right and righteous and noble and that is what makes each individual from the least to the greatest of utmost importance. You see we may know their names or they may be lost in the annals of history but they played a part in helping to accomplish the greater mission. It wasn't about them, it was about the cause, it was about something far greater than them and in the same way, listen church, the church, from the least to the greatest, from the known to the unknown, from the named to the unnamed, we are a part of a family, we are part of a body, and we are a unified people who strive with one another on a common mission on the Great Commission. We strive with the same objectives in the midst of the greatest battle ever fought. And listen, your role is important. Your focus is needed. Your effort will not go unnoticed. So even if your name or mine is never recorded or etched into the history records, or our fame is never more than another breath of air in a gush of wind, God knows, God sees, and God will reward on that day. Paul ends with his final benediction, a final prayer and reminder of God's presence and God's grace. In verse 22, it's pointed and it summarizes the heart of Paul so aptly. He says, the Lord be with your spirit. This is a final word specifically to Timothy. It's in the singular. It's as if he pulls Timothy aside as he writes this letter and he looks at his dear beloved son in the faith and he says, Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. The Lord strengthen you for the call that God has placed on your life. The Lord give you everything you need. The Lord is with you and in you and he will work through you as you lean into him. May the Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. You keep striving on as an individual. You press on. This is your leg of the race. You run with the baton in hand. And church, let us us embrace this same mentality. Whatever God has given to you, whatever he has called you to, run your leg of the race. Run it hard. Run it fast, run it faithfully, run through the tape, leaning across the line. And then he looks at the church broadly and he switches from the singular to the plural and he says, grace be with you. Grace be with all of you because you're going to need it and you need to be reminded that it is available to you. I love, listen, that every one of Paul's benedictions contains the word grace. The word grace was never very far from Paul's lips and certainly not from his heart. Paul's terminal word and wish was that God's unmerited favor, his forgiveness, and his enabling power would be showered upon his children. Grace be with you. You know, the Lord's Table, Communion, is a celebration of the presence and grace of Jesus Christ.